We are um, kind of beginning, last week we began a series on the Beatitudes of Jesus, which is how he begins the sermon that he began his ministry with, the Sermon on the Mount. If you've never read it or heard about it, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7, considered by many to be the greatest sermon ever told. And how he begins the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is with these eight statements of who's actually blessed in this world. Um, the Beatitudes, like many of the teachings of the Scripture, but especially the Beatitudes, they are kind of shallow enough for an, for an infant or child to play in. They are also, and the saying is, deep enough to drown an elephant. <laughs> I don't understand. There's probably a better way of saying that. But um, even if you've been following Christ your whole life, the Beatitudes still kind of sting because they call us to, uh, to live and to function and to have a posture that is often different than the ways of our flesh and the ways of this world. So um, we're jumping into that. Now, um, all of the Beatitudes begin with the statement of blessing, blessed are. And some translations say happy are, which is good. About nine years ago, there was a video that took the internet by storm, and there was a word in there that was used over and over and over again that I think could apply to the Beatitudes, and we could swap out the word blessed or happy and put the word that this gentleman uses. This is a a kind of a heavy sermon for today, so we have to have some comic relief on the beginning. So I want to show you this video you probably saw in 2011, and um, look for the word that keeps repeating. Let's go for it. Good start. It's a good start. It's a great start. Yeah, it's the first win. But you- that we can claim to be completely original, which excites me, which puts me in, a, in the zone of winning. I'm by winning. I win here and I win there. Now what? Let's just do it. Let's meet this thing head on. And you were, you were in it to win it. Talk about an education. And then like this, and then that's the guy, and he's our dad, and we can get all the answers and the truth. Wow, winning. It's how you perceive it. Just retired because I'm done. I'm not very good at it. And they keep winning and building bigger houses than mine, defeating the naysayers. You're either winning or you're losing. There's nothing in between. You. How do you plan on winning that war? Uh, with with zeal and and focus and and violent hatred. Just to finally just go, yeah. You know, good luck. You're gonna need it. I'm gonna be over here like winning. Uh, come Wednesday morning, they're gonna rename it to Charlie Brothers and not Warner Brothers. <laughs> Duh. Winning. Uh, winning in what sense? Just winning, just being Because happy, some would say winning. that you're defeated now. Um, they can say that, but what kind of car are they driving? <laughs> oh, man. How many of you have seen that video? I had to cut it short because there were some things he said that are inappropriate for a worship time. Um, but that kind of, but in 2011, that, that phrase winning kind of became a kind of a cultural phenomenon on, on the internet. And that's kind of how Charlie Sheen views himself as it, it's you're winning or you're losing. And I think the Beatitudes, we could kind of take that playfully and say that when Jesus makes these eight statements, what he's actually saying is this is who's winning. The world thinks you're winning this way, but in the kingdom of heaven, this is actually who's blessed, who's happy, or who is, quote, Winning. So I would love to um, read these Beatitudes together. So if you have a Bible, let's go to Matthew 5. And, um, or you could open it on your phone, on your phone app. I like to bring my actual Bible to church. I wanna, if you have one, I encourage you to do that. Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1. 
Matthew says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, his disciples, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, and notice these are not, you will be blessed if you do, that these are just statements. They're not wishes or prayers, they're just statements. Blessed are Those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of our Lord. You go. If you were noticed, I'm sure you did, there's kind of an upside down nature to these statements. Like much of the kingdom of heaven, the script is flipped. For example, if you want to be first in the kingdom of heaven, what do you need to do? Be last. If you want to save your life, you have to lose your life. If you want to be a leader in the kingdom of heaven, you have to serve, right? There's these, uh, these kind of paradoxical um, paradigms and statements in Jesus' teaching and, and the Sermon on the Mount and especially the Beatitudes are no different. It would kind of help us to see this. Um, I've only found this in one place, but somebody did some incredible work by taking the world's Beatitudes and then I'm kind of contrasting them with Jesus' Beatitudes. And this is really fascinating. Uh, I want to read it to you. It, according to the world, you're winning or you're blessed when you're self-confident. They would say, blessed are the self-confident because they rule the world. But Jesus flips that and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way of the world is blessed are positive thinkers because they don't need anybody's comfort. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The world says the people who are winning are cocky and assertive because they'll get what they want. But Jesus says, no, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The way of the world says, blessed are those who have everything they want, for they're already satisfied. And this is kind of the the impulse behind our consumer culture. Jesus says, no, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for more things, but for righteousness for they will be satisfied. The world says, blessed are the vengeful because they get respect. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. They will receive mercy. The way of the world is blessed are the impure pleasure seekers because they will see a good time because you only live once. Jesus says, no. Those who are winning are pure in heart. They will see God. 
And seeing God is greater than seeing a good time. The world says, blessed are the violent, those who beat their opponents because the victors write the history books. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. How different would our world be if just Christians functioned as peacemakers? The world says, blessed are the popular because everybody loves them. This is kind of Hollywood's mantra. Jesus says, it's not the popular who's winning. It's those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's upside down how most of the time we would think of it. We're going to focus on verse 4 today, the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Just at face value, it's kind of interesting. You could rephrase this as saying, happy are the unhappy. Really, it's the people who are sad, who are winning and blessed. This should kind of stop us. Often, I hear this verse quoted at a funeral or in times of bereavement. And while it is true God is near to the brokenhearted, as the psalmist says, while it is true that Jesus was a man acquainted with suffering and grief, absolutely, that's not what this verse is saying. This verse, contextually, was not meant to be spoken in times of loss or bereavement or even at a funeral, even though it often is said. Because contextually, Jesus is talking about our spiritual dispositions. Last week was blessed are the poor in spirit, people who, are, who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. And in line with that is blessed are those who mourn. And, and I would kind of, the amplified version of the Bible actually does this well. It says blessed are those who mourn, and in, in parentheses is for their sin. And that would be the appropriate way to, to read this verse. Blessed are those who mourn, not over the loss of a loved one, but over the loss of their innocence. This is not the sorrow of bereavement. It's the sorrow of repentance. And, and we're not talking about self-pity either, people who are mourning over themselves. This is about mourning over our, our, um, our brokenness before God. This is the, the kind of the second stage of spiritual blessing that builds on being poor in spirit. Um, it's one thing to acknowledge your sin, which was the big idea last week. It's a whole other thing to grieve it. How often have we seen um, people in our culture, whether that's celebrities or athletes or politicians, do something awful, and then because of maybe public outcry, they're forced to read a statement of apology, and often it's like they're just reading an apology. Sometimes you actually see contritement, and like that person is actually sorry, right? And, and that's the difference. Being, you can recognize your spiritual poverty, and you can confess, but to actually cry and mourn and to be contrite is a whole nother ballgame. There are people who recognize that they've messed up, but they don't. They're just sad they got caught, or their sad public opinion is against them. And then there are people who actually move deeper and actually mourn over their sin. It, it's interesting that Jesus... It's like the second thing he teaches. Yes, there's joy in the spirit. Yes, there is peace 
and, uh, and, and things like laughter and all these things, um, but it should not be lost on us that the second thing Jesus opens with in his sermon is there should be brokenness on, of some level in our life that we acknowledge. In fact, if, you were, if the Bible is a, um, a sponge, and if you were to like wring it out, and everything that's in here would come out, there's a couple of things. One of them that comes out is that God uses brokenness. In Judges chapter 7, verse 19, God used broken vessels in the hands of Gideon's people. In Matthew 8 and in Matthew 14, he used broken bread from a boy's happy meal to feed thousands. In Mark 14, there's a broken bottle of perfume that comes to anoint Jesus. And of course, the climax of this illustration would be there's a broken body on the cross that God used to make a way for us. It seems that God's hobby and specialty is turning um, brokenness into beauty. He is near to the brokenhearted. In fact, Isaiah 61, verse 1, this is kind of Jesus' mission statement that he reads at the beginning of his ministry. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to... Bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus, of course, embodies this. He weeps over the sins of others. Do we weep over the sins of others? Do we weep over our sin? Do we acknowledge our sin? I know that in today's day, Sin is like a politically incorrect word. But it's a matter of historical fact that when Jesus met sin, it actually disturbed him and he wept. One example is in Luke 19, verse 41. It says, but as he came closer to Jerusalem, this is Holy Week, and he saw the city ahead, he began to weep. And he said, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace but now it's too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side, which happened 40 years later when the Roman emperor, when I think it was Titus, entered the city of Jerusalem and burned it. Jesus was prophesying that that would happen, and it happened. They will crush you to the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. What's fascinating, this phrase, this is not even in my notes, but it's great to know, is this, um, this phrase, they won't leave a single stone in place. The, the temple had a ton of treasure. And when Titus came in, he gave the army specific orders not to, to um, set the temple on fire because they wanted all the goods right? They're like pirates. And um, they, they had set a, a building on fire next to the temple. The fire jumped and burned the temple and, and collapsed the temple. And so the Roman army went in and brick by brick peeled out all the rubble and all the stones to get the treasure that was in the temple. It, Jesus here is prophesying. You can look up history books, not even written by Christians, and find these details. It's fascinating. But in that context of Jesus prophesying what would happen in the 70s, He's weeping over the unrepentant state of Jerusalem and his people. The greatest question 
that I would ask you today is if Jesus weeps over our sin, why don't we? Why is it that we think our sin is no big deal? I think um, the cross is one of the greatest dramas of the universe. I occasionally get the opportunity to go see a Broadway show. Um, I got my third or fourth job growing up when I was 18 was I worked for a theatrical lighting company, and my boss was the theatrical lighting designer for David Copperfield. He told me all of his tricks. They're really easy. But we would travel around and set up lights and curtains, and we would install curtains like these in places and do all our rigging. And I kind of had this behind-the-scenes kind of love for everything theatrical. And um, then whenever I was, um, I think I was 20, I got to go to New York City, and we saw Stomp on Broadway, which as a drummer was amazing. And then um, in San Antonio, years ago, um, The Lion King came through. They come through like every year. If you ever, The Lion King was incredible Broadway show, right? And, and we see, like, and I know what, happen, what it takes to put on these shows. And, and, and we as a culture, we like dramatizations. I mean, much of Netflix is this, like, let's show you this drama and let's, it's all fake. We're going we're gonna to spend billions of dollars to display things and, and there's always messages in them. I think the cross is the greatest drama that has ever unfolded in front of humanity. When you see the cross on Golgotha, and, and, and we, see, we see the body of the only person who ever lived perfectly broken on that cross, there's two things that you come away with. The first thing is my sin is that serious. The world said, oh, sin's not a big deal. It's a politically incorrect term. But when you see the cross of Christ, I don't know how you walk away thinking, my sin's not a big deal. It's a big deal. But it doesn't stop there. The second thing that the drama of the cross would teach us is that while our sin is that serious to God, his love for us is also that serious that he would not call us strangers and enemies, but that he would go through the links that it took to provide a way back to him and to fix what was broken in the garden. I have another question for you. And it's uncomfortable, but I think it would be helpful to your spiritual life. And, and maybe you take this with you this week. Is there anything in your life that grieves the heart of God. My guess is if you ask that question seriously and you're honest with yourself, there's probably answers that have already come into your conscience. Sometimes people struggle with prayer and they'll say, well, I prayed and God never said anything or never did it. I guarantee you, you ask this question to the Lord, he'll answer it. One of the patterns of the Old Testament is every time Israel would come to God, he wouldn't talk to them until he dealt with their sin first. It's like one of the main patterns is God always wanted to deal with the sin of Israel before they did anything. 
And if you were to take this question honestly before the Lord and say, Lord, is there anything that I am thinking or doing or desire that grieves your heart, that causes you to mourn, would you show me? I don't know how, if you honestly asked it, that he would be silent. Now, this is not a fun question, but it is freeing. So I want to give you some homework, as any good teacher would do. And it's three parts. It's, you know, one, get a piece of paper and go somewhere private, and then do these three things. First, kind of ask that question of the Lord. Lord, is there anything that grieves my, your heart? And ask him to show you. You might read and pray through Psalms 51. That's a great um, kind of primer for this sort of thing. And, and then to um, actually write down what those things are. No one's going to see it, but what I found in doing this is when you actually put pen to paper and it, it just it helps you be more serious about it and it keeps you from wiggling out of it. It's very important that we name. And often when we name these sins, it starts to remove the power. Um, the enemy likes to work in darkness. And when we bring things into the light, it, it, it really disarms a lot of this stuff. Uh, the second thing is to uh, hate it. Ask God to show you how he sees it. How he feels about it. And the third thing would be to um, forsake it. Surrender it to God and ask him to take it and refuse to pick it up. I had a, a moment like this years ago. Um, I grew up in a very perfectionistic household and um, in a very controlling household. And what that did to me as a kid who kind of um, needed to be accepted and to be perfect, needed to be perfect to be accepted, is anytime. Um, I saw imperfection, I could easily spot it because I, it, imperfection was easily spotted in me. And over time, that grew into a very critical spirit where um, very quickly I could see what's wrong with anything or anybody, or so I thought. And that had bled over into my relationships, and I, without really realizing it, I had become kind of a dark cloud in people's lives, and I had become very kind of negative and cynical and critical, and, and um, people didn't really want to be around me because I wasn't encouraging, and I was always telling them what was wrong instead of telling them what was right. And I, there was truly this stronghold in my life, and, and I could feel that this wasn't good or right, and yet I couldn't get away from it. And one day, the, I, I did this. I asked the Lord, hey, is there anything, you know? And to my surprise, he brought this thing that I didn't think was a big deal, brought it to my attention, and just like had one of those really surreal experiences with the Lord where he showed me this thing that I kind of prided. Like I, I took pride in being the voice of reason. I took pride in being the critic or the cynic. I really like that was like my thing. I'd say I hate to be the voice of reason, but that sucks, you know. <laughs> and I really like, I took pride in being that guy. And I remember being on my knees before the Lord in my office and him giving me this like mental picture of what the thing I was proud of would actually look like to him. And it, the picture I got was just this black, slimy, sticky tar that was the worst smell in the world. 
And this thing that I thought was kind of cool in my thing, in the sight of God, was repulsive. And when I saw this critical spirit in me and saw it through the eyes of God, the only thing I could do was weep. I cried so hard my contacts fell out. It was the first time that I'd ever mourned and grieved over the things that break the heart of God. And I was 26, 27, 10 years ago. Had already been an ordained pastor in a successful church. Grew up in church my whole life. And I can say it wasn't until that day that I learned what mourning for sin actually was. And I remember just saying, God, you have to take it. Like, I can't just not be critical. I can't just not be a jerk. Or whatever word you want to put in there that's inappropriate to say in a microphone that's being recorded. I, I just, Lord, I can't, you're going to have to take this. And by his grace, through two years of counseling, he did. Every now and then people will say something like, oh, you're so encouraging, or I feel so much peace, and I'm like, you have no idea. Like, if you actually feel that that's God's spirit you feel, because given my flesh, I am nothing like that. I think I can only even get there, and you could only get there in your equivalent of that story, by getting on your knees and saying, Lord, shine light, and help me to see the things how you see them, and be honest about it. So I offer you that homework. It won't be fun. But I guarantee you, there's freedom there. There's forgiveness. There's mercy. And you have no idea the effect it would have on the people in your life. How would your neighbors be different? How would your church members be different? How would your gospel community be different? How would your spouse, children, family be different if the things that are causing rub that are actually breaking the heart of God, if you actually got on God's page with that and surrendered it and asked for forgiveness and deliverance, how would the lives of other people be different? Hard stuff, hard sermon, but I believe there's freedom in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are uh, so loving enough that you would have the hard conversations with us. And that you would, before anything, seek to deal with the sin that easily entangles us and that easily separates us, primarily from you, but also with who you've called us to truly be as your children. Would help us to be um, comfortable in the discomfort to be secure enough in our identity in you that we can say, Lord, turn over the tables in my life. Set me free from the things that have me enslaved. God, more than anything, help us to see the cross as you saw it and to not be casual with your finished work on the cross. Lord, I pray for those here who are listening, who are separated from you and have not um, acknowledged and mourned over their state before you and they need 
salvation and regeneration of their heart. I pray that right now you would overwhelm them, not with a sense of guilt or condemnation, but with conviction, and that it would be your kindness that would lead them to a place of repentance and full trust in you. I ask this in your holy name. Amen.